Welcome to the Tech Humanist Show, a multimedia format program exploring how data and technology shape the human experience. I'm your host, Kate O'Neill. This week, a lot of the AI ethics work is Western and Northern European and North American focused, both in terms of the impacts of technology, the kind of platforms that it analyzes, but also the these sort of ethical philosophies that it looks at. And there is there is a tremendous amount to be gained from looking at perspectives from other parts of the world. Abhishek Gupta is the founder of Montreal AI Ethics Institute and a machine learning engineer at Microsoft, where he serves on the CSE Responsible AI Board. He represents Canada for the International Visitor Leaders Program, administered by the U.S. State Department as an expert on the future of work. He additionally serves on the AI Advisory Board for Dawson College and is an associate member of the LF AI Foundation at the Linux Foundation. Abhishek is also a global shaper with the World Economic Forum and a member of the Banff Forum. He is a faculty associate at the Frankfurt Big Data Lab at the Goethe University, an AI ethics mentor for Acorn Inspirations, and an AI ethics expert at Ethical Intelligence Company. He is the responsible AI lead for the Data Advisory Council at the Northwest Commission on Colleges and Universities. He is a guest lecturer at the McGill University School of Continuing Studies for the Data Science and Business Decisions course on the special topic of AI ethics. His research focuses on applied technical and policy methods to address ethical, safety, and inclusivity concerns in using AI in different domains. He has built the largest community-driven public consultation group on AI ethics in the world that has made significant contributions to the Montreal Declaration for Responsible AI, the G7 AI Summit, AHRC and WEF Responsible Innovation Framework, Scotland's National AI Strategy, and the European Commission Trustworthy AI Guidelines. His work on public competence building in AI ethics has been recognized by governments from North America, Europe, Asia, and Oceania. So, Abhishek... You are live on the Tech Humanist Show. Thank you for being here. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah. Nice to see everybody here. Yeah, and as I mentioned when we were uh, when I was warming up, that we're uh, already covering a lot of the globe. You are you are joining us from India today, right? Yeah, yeah, joining everybody from India. Uh, we've Late. been experiencing some heavy rains. Oh, okay. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's. <laughs> It's, uh, so yeah, getting to enjoy a little bit of that. Uh, it's a little past midnight here, so oh if gosh. I seem a little bit loopy, <laughs> I hope you'll give me a little bit of rope there. <laughs> loopy is sort of the theme of the show, so I don't think we're going to have any problem there. <laughs> but yeah, that's a, it's amazing that you're you're uh, jo- joining us so late. I would be I would be not competent at midnight. <laughs> well, it's so cool. I, man, what what a background. Oh, yeah. Correct me on the pronunciation on that P-I-P-E-D-A. Is it just, how do you say it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's PIPEDA. So it's Pipita. Uh, Canada's privacy legislation. Yeah. Well, you're involved in everything. You have a hand in all of it. How well, did you... I also have a, a stellar team behind me. So, uh, <laughs> so that uh, definitely makes life a little easier. That's fantastic. How did you get going in this field? What got you started? It was it was an interesting journey. So I was uh, at the first AI for Good Global Summit in Geneva in 2017 at the United Nations. And uh, it was interesting. Of course, this was one year before the start of the uh, or before the, you know, sort of coming into effect of the GDPR. And uh, discussions in Europe were much further ahead, I have to say, uh, compared to North America and the rest of the world when it came to thinking about the ethics of technology and of course you know gdpr is specifically focused on privacy 
And I, I found it fa- fascinating that uh, in, in Canada, where we really pride ourselves on being inclusive, being uh, you know, concerned with some of the societal impacts of technology, we weren't really paying as much attention as we should have uh, uh, to this topic and area. And uh, the other thing that I realized was that even the places where these conversations were taking place, a lot of these were uh, sort of behind closed doors. They were limited in terms of who was able to participate in those discussions. And I think that was one of the things that really stirred me towards uh, the work that I uh, started to do, which was to invite people from different parts of the uh, community from different walks of life to really come in and participate in these discussions because I think we all have something to offer. Uh, we all have different experiences that, and, and a lot of the challenges that we're now facing have surfaced in one form or another in different fields. And uh, that was something that was missing where there was this sort of, you know, not to maybe, you know, for the lack of a better phrase, there was a degree of elitism in terms of uh, who was able to participate and where these discussions were taking place. And that's that's sort of how I got started, was to really create an arena for people to feel welcome, to feel uh, um, appreciated in terms of what they had to offer, and at the same time, uh, be a conduit for providing a little bit more nuance to the conversation rather than trying to make blanket statements saying that, uh, you know, robots are going to come and take my job. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like using that that uh, phrase within my work, too, just because it seems like it's the, it's the pinnacle of what people's anxiety is about. Well, no, no, no. The pinnacle is, I hope we don't become servants to robots. <laughs> like That's sort of the, the worst case scenario <laughs> that people are always anxious about. But well, and then I love that you uh, made sure that you were doing the work of, of inclusivity, as, as it's mentioned in your bio, that that is one of your focus areas. But, you know, a lot of people talk about broadening the, the, the reach and bringing in more of the community, but it's it's really important work to, to do that and actually get, you know, more stakeholders and more constituencies at the table. 100%, yeah. And, you know, a, a lot of this uh, actually, well, while we were still allowed to meet in person, mm-hmm. uh, this was something that we uh, prided ourselves on was to be able to invite people to, you know, different venues uh, from all these walks of life to come together and and to have this time together to discuss these issues where we, we were able to facilitate uh, a, a sort of common ground when it came to uh, different levels of understanding, uh, but different backgrounds and experiences as well. Because again, as you said, when it comes to inclusivity, inclusivity you know, shows up in different forms. It can be in the form of tokenism where you know you you just throw some something on there to appear to be inclusive but to really be inclusive is hard work yeah and and listeners will uh, of course appreciate that as they listen to your show they already probably realize that and a lot of people doing great work in this space but when it comes to being really inclusive that's hard work it it requires persistence perseverance and, and that's something that we've kept as something that's integral to our work uh, from the very beginning. And I think uh, over time, that's paid off in terms of the community that we've uh, managed to build. So I think one of the ways in, in which your work seems like it's inclusive is that you're not just focused on Montreal, despite the, the name of the organization, right? You're, you seem as if your scope is actually broader than Montreal. It's Canada, it's North America, it's really the whole world. You, you're, you're really playing in a very global kind of international arena. So how, how does uh, your work entail keeping up with AI ethics developments or how much does it 
it entail keeping up with developments around the world as opposed to you know just those that are within the scope of Montreal say or Canada or or North America yeah no and and uh, so that that's a great point and and you know one of the reasons for why you know we have Montreal in our name was as well because it's it's my home and uh, you know that's that's where we started but certainly we we now have a a very global scope uh, we do keep up with most developments not all uh, because well it's just impossible with the pace of change and and the reason for doing that is also each different part uh, sort of brings a facet or a nuance that gets missed elsewhere. Mm. And I think one of the things that we've noticed recently, which a colleague of mine uh, and I highlighted in a, a recent uh, MIT Tech Review article was how a lot of the AI ethics work is sort of Western and Northern European and North American focused, uh, both in terms of the impacts of technology, the kind of platforms that it analyzes, but also the these sort of ethical philosophies that it looks at. And, and there, is, there is a tremendous amount to be gained from looking at perspectives from other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the challenges in other parts of the world are, all, are, are also quite specific to those places. And that's something that doesn't get talked about often. One of the things that we see, which I think is particularly problematic, is lumping everything together in the global south. Mm-hmm. I mean, the global south isn't uh, a, a homogenous whole. It, it is uh, rich with diversity, each with its own specific context, its culture, their own sets of values and, and what people aspire to and, and hold near and dear. And, and that, again, I think we, we need to draw a bit more focus towards that. And through our sort of global you know, analysis and, and keeping in touch with the developments from different parts of the world, we're able to bring in some of those perspectives into these conversations, which is something I think that uh, tends to get reflected in our work uh, when we're talking about this breaking out of that, you know, as you said, the North American mold, Mm -hmm. uh, which is dominant, yes, but uh, there are other parts of the world as well. What, What are some of the developments that you see happening in other countries or other parts of the world that you think maybe North American ethicists and stakeholders should have their eyes on and should be paying attention to? So one of one of the developments that I think uh, one of the developments, or rather one of the perspectives, let's say, that I think doesn't get enough attention is uh, the 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 way robots, uh, and I'm talking about you know not robots as in terminators, but like simple embodiments. Uh-huh. But l- let's say we're talking about social care robots, and and the perspective that uh, say the Japanese have versus the perspective that you have in the United States, and how that's there are differences in terms of how robots are portrayed from a cultural perspective and subsequently how the societal perceptions are shaped and how willing and accepting people are of uh, robots in a social care setting, which is radically different in a place like Japan versus in the United States. Uh, Other perspectives that uh, are interesting to think about, uh, for example, uh, is uh, the Ubuntu philosophy when it comes to thinking about uh, the place of a human being uh, and, and how it is something that's relational rather than rational. And, and there is a lot to be learned if we were to reimagine or, or let's say imagine technology ethics from these ethical philosophies rather than just thinking about it from you know utilitarianism or from deontology or virtue ethics or any of these sort of, let's say, more well-known ethical philosophy. So there, there are all these different perspectives that you would see from different parts of the world that get sort of missed in that 
conversation. Yeah, that, that, I know John C. Havens was talking about that too when he was on the show, and I, I love that idea of bringing that Ubuntu uh, philosophy into into the the fold and making sure that we're having this you know very integrative holistic discussion about about all of the different mm-hmm. viewpoints. You know, in general, are you seeing movements towards certain kinds of regulations in other parts of the world that you think are going to be meaningful in the, in the way they influence? Like, say, you know, the GDPR, for example, has been hugely influential. As you mentioned, it's, you know, privacy focused, but of course it has repercussions for AI and for other parts of technology. Are you seeing anything like that anywhere else on the horizon that you think like, oh, this could really, this could really play out in some interesting ways for AI? Hmm. So I think, you know, one of the places where I've seen, or let, let me, let me rephrase. I think, I think what's interesting when we're, when we're looking at some of these legislations like the GDPR is that I think they were, it, it, it sets a great standard, right? There is no, there are no two ways about it, but it's, it's it, given that it was the first endeavor that was, you know, sort of wide ranging and, and sweeping, I think it's, it's held up as the gold standard, even though it does have uh, sort of, you know, chinks in the armor where, uh, you know, things do slip through the cracks and there are ways that we can improve it. On the other hand, I feel that some of the legislations like the BIPA in, in the state of Illinois, uh, the CCPA, uh, these are these are interesting in the in the fact that they're they're quite targeted in, in terms of either, uh, you know, sort of domain scope or in terms of uh, regional scope. And there are pros and cons to this approach, right? The pros being that uh, given that it's more targeted, the potential for being more fine-grained in terms of the the measures that you can put through, the controls that you can ask for, and, and subsequently the impact that you can have is just so much, it's, it's just so much better uh, compared to having something that's very abstract and high level. Uh, and, and of course, you know, uh, legal scholars will challenge me that the beauty of having something that's high level and abstract is that it allows you for flexibility uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, encountering, you know, uncertainty or different scenarios that you didn't envision in the beginning. But I'm a big fan uh, of both and though. So I feel like that's where (laughs) this really applies in this case. (laughs) Absolutely. And, and, and exactly here, what, what happens then is that there, there is potential for uh, different interpretations of these regulations of these laws, which leads to inconsistency in application. And I think that's part of the problem in terms of the frustration that people face when they, let's say, you know, face injustice because of an algorithmic system is depending on where you are, you might, you know, you might receive different outcomes in terms of the, uh, you know, the process of recourse, the the uh, sort of uh, judicial process that you have at your disposal, just because of the way different bodies choose to interpret those laws, and and again, I think I think that's you know it's it's not a knock on the legislative or the legal system. It's just that maybe there is room there for being a bit more fine grained in terms of the recommendations that we make, and ultimately, I think making them a bit more actionable so that there there is yes room for interpretation, but there isn't so much room for interpretation that you're twisting it to your own needs. So basically following it in letter, but not in spirit. Yeah, that's, it makes sense. And I, I think about that a lot with things like, as you mentioned, the Illinois biometrics law and things like that, 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 that they are 
you know, at least within the context of U.S. law, it seems to happen a lot that you get, you know, states or even cities that that try out different kinds of legislation. And then you can sort of see how it plays in a small scale before it's ever really entertained at the federal level. And I don't I don't know how often that model is, you know, plays out in other countries and other parts of the world that, you know, you get that sort of um, almost like test ground for different markets uh, to see how these things play on, in small scale before they can, you know, really be entertained at the federal level. But but yeah. that seems like there's a lot of value to that, to, to having, you know, as you say, at that federal level, you definitely want to have these nuanced, but abstract, but, you know, applicable kind of, you know, those kinds of conversations. But it's really, it seems like, at least from my perspective, uh, you know, it, it must be a lot easier once you have some demonstrable kind of results that are, are from smaller sort of test markets in a sense. Yeah, no, and and I like that you use the word, uh, you know, test ground or you know, uh, you know, sandbox really. And I think when we, you know, we we keep mentioning how policymaking and and lawmaking, you know, always trails behind technology, uh, just because of you know the slower you know cycle for it and and whatever other you know checks and balances that we have in place. Rightly so, because we mm. don't want to rush things. At the same time, sometimes it feels like. Uh, you know, we're trying to legislate cars when we, uh, you know, still have horses uh, or, or sorry, we, we're trying to, uh, you know, uh, legislate horses when <laughs> right. we have cars on the road. Yeah. And, 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 and what's problematic there is it's because of that slow cycle, right? It, if, if we have these, you know, smaller sandboxes and test grounds, then we could really attempt to uh, experiment and experiment in a positive sense, not experiment as in, you know, trying to see, uh, you know, if there are some negative, you know, harms that we can get away with, but really to see how we can create the most positive impact, how we can be the most actionable uh, that we can. And, and, and to do that at a local level, to, to involve at that local level, the community itself in, in gaining that feedback, because gathering feedback at a federal level is incredibly hard to even assimilate all of that and, and to feed that back into the process. Whereas if you did it at a municipal level, now that's something that's interesting because you, you do have some of those processes in place to be able to you know manage and assimilate and act on the feedback that you could gather from the local communities. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Now you're talking too about, um, you know, the, the interpretability of uh, regulations, and of course, I know that your um, focus is on AI ethics, not AI regulations, but of course they go a little hand in hand. So I'm wondering, in terms of interpretability, you know, what are some of the concepts that uh, AI ethics initiatives, for the most part, seem to agree upon? Because I know that there are a lot of different ways that AI ethics initiatives kind of approach the scope and and the layout of how they're going to uh, define what standards are and, and how, how they're going to be measured and how they're going to, you know, roll out and involve the community and things like that. So what are some of the things that that you see as as the things that are generally agreed upon or that you think should be <laughs> the things that are agreed upon in the sense? <laughs> well, and I mean, you know, that's that's a it's an easy and a hard question. It's an easy question in the sense that I think at this point we've had so many sets of guidelines and principles that I one would imagine that every possible principle out there has been covered, you know, uh, many times over, mm -hmm. that it's it's fairly easy to draw up a list of things that are, you know, commonly accepted. Uh, you know, we can talk about fairness, mm -hmm. privacy, uh, security, 
accountability, uh, uh, transparency. But I think one of the other issues, you know, that's that's a flip side of this coin is that the taxonomy of this entire sort of space is also muddied quite a bit in the in the way people use these terms. So everybody means slightly different things when they're talking about even something uh, like privacy, which one would imagine has, you know, fairly, you know, well settled upon definitions for what privacy right. should be. But when you're talking to people coming from different walks of life, uh, and, and even if they're from the same walk of life, but coming from different uh, regions or uh, jurisdictions, the way they think about privacy is is different. Uh, the nuances are where things are interesting, right? Because ultimately, when it comes to implementing this stuff, you know, the devil is in the details, right? And and without that, uh, we're really... Um, we're, we're, we're really just, you know, patting ourselves on the back with all of these high level principles, but not really, uh, you know, coming to grips with some of the more concrete ideas around, well, when we're talking about privacy, if, if, if you make a claim about the privacy of a product that you're building, and I make a claim about the privacy of the product that I'm building, a third person as a consumer, how are they to judge whether Abhishek or Kate's product is better in terms of privacy protections? Like, what are... How do we evaluate that? Because we might be coming from different definitions of what we think uh, it guarantees the privacy of the data of the consumer. Uh, but, you know, uh, your protections, the protections that you're offering might be stronger than the ones that I'm offering. But the consumer has no way of knowing about it. And neither do we have any standardized benchmarks that help us evaluate that, Right. And, and the reason for that is because we don't have a shared taxonomy and every new set of, um, you know, guidelines or principles that come out, eh, they all come up with their own new definitions of what, uh, you know, privacy should mean, but not just privacy. Uh, that's just one dimension, right? Mm-hmm. What, what is fairness? What is accountability? What is transparency? And then interpretability, explainability, uh, intelligibility all of these, you know, sort of slightly adjacent areas, but each of them means something slightly, you know, different. Lots, lots to talk about there. But again, I think I think we need to all agree, at least for the most part, on, on some of the core aspects of these definitions so that we can start to move past, uh, you know, just posturing when it comes to taxonomy and really start to move towards implementing those uh, in practice. Yeah, and then, so, so you know, First of all, I guess one question is, have you seen anyone do a sort of super matrix of all of these different taxonomies and definitions and try to map one to the other? Like, are, is there some body that is tracking, you know, privacy as it's defined over here versus over here, transparency as it's defined over here as opposed to over here? Have you seen anything like that? So there are several initiatives, right? And, and um Again, you know, I'll, I'll preface all of my comments by saying that uh, it's it's a laudable effort to to even embark on doing that work because it's <laughs> it's a thankless job. Um, uh, that said, um, initiatives like uh, I believe there's one from the Berkman Klein uh, Center um, that has uh, this sort of very nice, you know, sort of visualization. It's like a mandala uh, and has you know sort of all the principles and everything mapped out and you know which. Uh, sort of, you know, sets of principles talk about which definitions and all of that stuff, right? The problem with these initiatives is that they quickly go out of date, 
Well, why? Uh, because uh, it, these are typically research projects that are funded uh, for a specific period of time. So you have a you know uh, a sprint of effort uh, that goes into you know creating them, working on them, and then and then it just sort of all you know uh, you know goes uh, static, sure. right? Uh, because there is more stuff that comes out, and then if if I was to even go back and look at that visualization, that's already I don't know how many months old it is at this point but uh, it's it's definitely more than six months old right and there have been developments in the past six months that of course would warrant inclusion in that mm -hmm. and would perhaps alter the landscape of that uh, taxonomy but of course uh, no one's maintaining that actively anymore and and there are other initiatives right um, and that's the problem with these is that uh, it's it's necessarily something that evolves all the time and it's just so hard to keep up. So either we need folks to stop uh, making amendments to the taxonomy, which, you know, I think when there is significant changes proposed, I think it warrants putting out something new, but just, you know, publishing a new paper at yet another conference that reframes <laughs> the definition of what intelligibility means just because, uh, you know, it adds just a little bit you know, something different there. Uh, sure. I think it just muddies the water and, and confuses the whole, you know, discussion and, and takes away valuable effort from where we could now be moving towards actually putting it into practice rather than, again, just theorizing and posturing around it. Well, so it sounds like I, I was going to ask you what, in your view, have been some important concepts that maybe some or most of these initiatives have overlooked? And one of them, it sounds like maybe sort of standardization in a sense, like kind of coming to agreement on what even the terms mean or the taxonomy is or whatever. Is that would you would that be fair to say? Yeah, yeah. Well, that and, and also I think even within these principles, there is an overemphasis on some areas, right? And 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 that's bound to be the case. Uh, you know, when when more people start entering into the domain, which is great, and and learning about it and and engaging with some of the the history of the work that's been done by the scholars in the space. One of the problems with that, though, is that you can end up focusing far too much on a few areas to the exclusion of others. An example of that would be. Uh, how machine learning security uh, is something that is an area that's overlooked. And machine learning security, when we're talking about that as an area, I think is is quite fundamental in terms of the impact that it will have on all the other tenets within uh, AI ethics. And the reason I say that is because it is... it. So when we're talking about machine learning, it, it basically opens up these new attack surfaces that fall outside of traditional cybersecurity measures, meaning that we're now able to attack machine learning systems in novel ways that aren't covered by the traditional cybersecurity protections that we put in place, which means that if you in all earnestly, uh, earnestness put uh, you know, bias mitigation measures in place as you were developing uh, uh, an ML system, if I was to compromise the the model uh, through you know an attack like data poisoning mm -hmm. um, I could uh, sort of negate the effect of that bias mitigation measure that you had put in place in the beginning and and hence basically render um, you know uh, useless the efforts that you put in and and create this situation where 
slow, I am slowly able to compromise all of these different facets of the ethical considerations that you put in place for that system. And it continues to baffle me that despite a lot more work being done in this space, it, machine learning security barely ever gets a mention in, in popular media uh, or, or even in other research circles that are outside of that uh, ML security domain, where most of the effort still seems to be focused on issues like privacy, fairness, bias, interpretability, uh, explainability. And then those are, yes, those are very, very important areas. But I think we also need to not not ignore some of these other areas which are important to consider, especially when machine learning security uh, is, is sort of uh, like this foundational cross-cutting piece where if you ignore it, you're, you're sort of diffusing the, the uh, efficacy of the efforts in all of these other areas where you're working so hard really to do right by everybody. Well, it seems like it's a vulnerability that might be easy to overlook if you're not someone who spends time with you know execution and building and and trying these things and that's what i was going to say it's actually an interesting segue because i was going to say you're in interest in an interesting position as someone who's a software and machine learning practitioner as well as someone who's you know shape helping shape and lead the discussion on ai ethics so this seems like one of the insights that you bring as a result of that but what other kinds of insights do you think that being a practitioner affords you in this in this dual focus I, th I think the biggest benefit that I uh, get by being able to sort of straddle both worlds is is to look at the places where we experience friction. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is when we're talking about principles, it's, it's great when we're talking about them in the abstract, but at some point, some of it needs to be put into practice, either in the form of a technical intervention or an organizational change. And I'm not talking here about, you know, larger systemic changes, because that's those are, of course, you know, those require a great deal of momentum. And there are, you know, other scholars who are much better placed than I am to talk about how we might do so most, most effectively. But at least from a practitioner's perspective, this is the place where I see a lot of efforts and initiatives failing to gain traction or failing to make an impact is because they fail to consider the needs of developers who are on the ground. And what I mean by that is, if you come and tell me, hey, you know, we should build models that, uh, you know, are unbiased, I, you know, that, that really isn't actionable uh, <laughs> advice for me as a practitioner, because unbiased can mean a lot of different things. And unbiased also can be implemented in, well, one unbiased is a fallacy, like you, you can never get that, right? You, you can mitigate bias, you can never completely eliminate it. That said, there are many different ways to go about it. There are many different implications of that. But most importantly, where in my workflow should I start to think about that, right? And a lot of people talk about, well, you should do it in sort of all parts of your life cycle, or you should do it here, you should do it, you know, towards, you know, engage with designers, do this and that. But a lot of the times that advice is sort of not well received because, again, it's too it's too amorphous. It's, it's not specific enough to the point where, if I'm a, an engineer working within a particular department, which is within a business unit, which is within an organization, you need to make sure that all of these uh, recommendations that you're making align with those technical policies and practices of that department that you're a part of. And, and how do you orient that with the business goals of the 
business unit that you're a part of and and ultimately the values that the organization holds dear and without doing all of that it's it's very idealistic to say that yes this will happen because at some point the people who are on the ground only have so much decision making power and and if you give them advice that requires massive overhaul that's something that's not going to gain as much traction just because it's it's really hard for one person to make that change and so i'd rather that we start by at least taking concrete steps in the right direction and and then creating local champions within the organization who understand the value of this and who then become advocates for this change because that's that's how you start a movement you don't come and say hey we're going to upend everything that you're doing because then people are just going to ignore what you're saying and go about doing what they what they're doing because at the end of the day uh, they're getting paid to uh, you know build products and services and if you ask them to abandon all of that chances are your advice is not going to be well received so is that part of is there an initiative within the Montreal AI Ethics Institute are you, are you are you focusing on trying to sort of translate a lot of guidelines or advice into what can be applied within organizations or is that outside the scope organization? No, no. And no. And, and, and that's exactly the kind of work that we focus on at the Institute is to look at what are the right points of intervention and then to really work on the ground in terms of how painless can we make it, you know, <laughs> and apologies for using that term. But I, I think for the lack of a better phrase, really, that is what we're looking to do is to eliminate the pain uh, to make to make it easy to do the right thing I think that's 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 how I would think of it is is if, if you make it dead easy to do the right thing people will do the right thing or at least they'll have much more of an incentive to do to do the right thing but if you make it incredibly hard it's just easy for us as humans to to not uh, have to put in that extra effort to do the right thing and so you know, to give you an example, when we, uh, we, we one of the projects that we're working on is to uh, help uh, developers assess the environmental impacts of the work that they do, and and of course, you know, both you and your listeners are are no strangers to the uh, massive computational requirements for uh, you know running large AI systems. How do we make uh, you know decisions in terms of when we should use? Uh, large AI models, if there are better alternatives, if as consumers, should we be picking a particular, uh, you know, manufacturers of these systems who are, you know, more green? And how do we make those comparisons? What, what do we do that? But all of that starts with somebody being able to quantify mm. uh, the impact that they're having. And not to say that there aren't initiatives already, there are. The problem with a lot of these are they ignore the developer's workflow. In the sense that they ask you to go to an external website and input a bunch of numbers and parameters about, you know, how you build your model, where you train them. And let's be honest, you know, as developers, uh, we hate documentation. Uh, it's it's just true. Um, <laughs> hey, I got my start doing that... developer documentation, so I can I can attest to that. <laughs> so you're gonna attest to that, right? Um, so you you know better than comments anyone, and man. code. <laughs> there's no oh, such thing. Nobody likes. There's no such thing. Um, so so the problem then is if you're asking me to go to an external website and put in all of this information, chances are I might do it the first couple of times, but you know I start to drop the ball. Uh, later on, because it's just something that you wouldn't lend too much of a priority on. But if you were integrate this in in a manner that's something similar to MLflow, 
which you know helps you sort of within the context of your code capture hyperparameters, do you know experiments across or sorry do comparisons across the different experiment runs that you're doing. Now that's something that's a little bit more natural to the developer workflow, to the data science workflow. Now, if you were to integrate the environmental impacts in a manner that follows this precedent that's set by something like MLflow, there is a lot higher of a possibility for people taking you up on that and and subsequently reporting those outcomes back to you rather than me having to go to an external website, fill out a form, get the result, take that PDF report or whatever, right. and, and now you know append that as a part of the rest of the product or service that I'm shipping. That's just too much effort. And, and I think that's, so th- those are the kinds of things that we're working on is, is to inject this, this sort of, uh, you know, doing the right thing or thinking about ethics right into the developer workflow so that we, again, as I said, you know, I can take those incremental steps in the right direction. We don't ask you to come and, you know, completely throw out everything that you've been doing because we know that maybe you'll do it the first time, but then you, you know, you'll go back into old habits and, and, uh, so that, that's really what we're trying to do is to make it easy for you to do the right thing. It almost sounds like it's almost like a wrapper around the existing workflow or process anyway. And, and beyond, like you're right, of course, the, the barrier to participation you know, being, being removed means that you'll probably get more participation. But it also seems like, you know, if, you, if we are interested in being champions of ethics and of good outcomes, then we have to think about the ways to be most effective in getting those <laughs> those kinds of initiatives deployed and, and followed and so on. So it, it's, it is incumbent on us as, as um, advocates of, of these ideas to, to think in the ways that you're describing, to think about like how, how could I actually make this more effective? How could I make this more integrative into the workflow that's actually going to make it more likely that we're going to have compliance and more likely that we're going to have you know, feedback that's useful and, and, and instructive? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I like how you put it because I think it, it is incumbent upon us in the sense that ultimately, you know, you can have the greatest idea, but if you're if you're unable to communicate it and the other person isn't able to receive your idea, then then it it, it isn't a great idea after all, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, or or rather, I should say that you you didn't do a great job of communicating that idea, and 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 I think a lot of that uh, is is what plagues our domain today. Is uh, a lot of the knowledge and the insights are trapped. Uh, within these white papers, within these research papers that are written in dense academic jargon. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, you've, you've worked in, in in technical documentation in the past, so you'll appreciate this. Like, if, if you don't make things clear, no one's going to read it, right? They, people are just going to try a bunch of random things and hope that it works. And <laughs> that's, we, we don't, we, yeah, and we, we don't want that. I mean, the number of memes that you'll find on Reddit where, you know, People just don't read the documentation because it's too hard and just try a bunch of things and hope that it works. That's sort of, we, we don't want that to happen here, especially that we're dealing with real impacts on people's lives. And drawing out these insights from these dense academic papers and, and you know, 600-page reports, there are some 600-page reports, would you believe it? Yes. Who's reading that <laughs> stuff, right? It's, it's, it's folks like us who are deeply interested in this space but mm-hmm. for the everyday developer who you know just wants to do the right thing but also still get on with their day job they're not going to read the 600 page report one right. because they don't have time and two maybe they don't even have the expertise to parse all the you know technical sure. jargon that you've used there 
So we, it, it really is, as you said, incumbent upon us to communicate this message in as clear a manner as, as we can. And I want to pivot just a little to, you know, with the time we have left, I wanted to ask you about, you know, kind of thinking about ethics in application. So are there applications of AI that you would argue can just not be ethical? So, for example, maybe military use of AI weapons. Are there any acceptable uses there that, you know, we we should be thinking about or should just whole categories of, of AI application be avoided from an ethical standpoint? Or, you know, there's also, of course, cities and regions enacting bans on facial recognition. So can the ethics there be resolved? And how will we know when we've resolved them? Those are really, really hard questions. Yeah, no, and they're, like they're not simple. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's my favorite thing uh, to do, to ask I... like a big, wide-reaching question when there's only a few minutes left on the clock. <laughs> when there's a few minutes left and, and, and all my brain power has been exhausted. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, no, it's it's interesting in the sense that I think there, there isn't a clear black and white answer. And, and, and the reason I say that is because a lot of it does depend on the surrounding measures, as, as you pointed out, right? Like it, it depends on some of the regulations that surround how you use some of this technology, but also uh, making sure that there is alignment with the context and the culture, uh, the values that uh, of, of where that system is being deployed. Yes, at the moment, there are uh, use cases where uh, we should completely abandon the use of AI because we haven't figured out the problems just yet. There are too many things that can go wrong. Uh, the systems are too brittle. They're too vulnerable uh, to being misused that uh, we, we, we should just lay them dormant or you know abandon them, revisit them once we've figured some more things out. And, and that's you know and that, that might be uh, discouraging to some folks who spend a lot of their time figuring this stuff out, but that's just the nature of discovery and invention, really where you know we, we might come up with great ideas, but sometimes we just don't have the potential to use them in the right manner. And, and hence, we should just hold off on it till we figure out the right way to use them or sometimes not use them at all. And, and that's totally fine. And I think that's one of the things where, you know, as you pointed out, we, we sort of see this inevitable march towards more automation and more AI, where in some areas, maybe... Maybe that's not the case. Maybe we should stop and question and say, hey, maybe the good old ways are, they're, they're good. Uh, yeah. Just because they're Paper old doesn't pen. mean they're bad. <laughs> right. Paper and pen, hey, you know, hey, uh, you know, think about this, right? You know, everybody said we were going to move to a paperless office, right? But uh, that never happened. And we still use a ton of paper. So, uh, you know, I mean, that's, of course, that's a facetious example when it comes to what we're talking about. But I think, you know, for the time being, when we're thinking about the military uses of AI or when we're thinking about facial recognition technologies, I think just the outsized potential in terms of how this can be misused, Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't warrant us from using it. When we have other alternatives that work and, uh, you know, still sort of get the job done in terms of, let's say, we want to, you know, do identification, is it necessary that we use facial recognition technology? I mean, Right up until now, we had been using other forms of identification, and they worked despite having flaws. So if we know that you know facial recognition has all of these problems and uh, can be misused, maybe we you know and, and a lot of companies, of course, are holding off on using it. Uh, and now there are you know emerging regulations in different parts that you know prevent its use. 
um, I think I think you're right in, in saying that, you know, in some places we, we should just not use it at all. Well, and that's why I guess, you know, sort of the, the follow up thought there is, is it even really useful to talk about AI ethics, quote unquote, as a whole discipline? Or is there such a fundamental difference between talking about the ethics of something like GPT-3 versus something like intelligent autonomous weapons, that it makes sense to discuss, you know, ethics of sub disciplines or subcategories of AI? or specific applications of AI or contexts where it's being applied? So I, for one, am, am more of a proponent of, of tailoring things down to different domains because I think, uh, and different domains, and, and I mean, use cases as being too specific, but at least different domains because some of the challenges that are presented differ quite a bit where for us to say, uh, hey, you know, let's apply explainability wholesale across all of these domains uh, you know, keeping in mind these principles sometimes can fall flat. And which is why I think in a lot of places we aren't seeing as much traction with some of these principles being implemented in practices. Because if you want to cover a large area, you necessarily have to be broad. But by being broad, you're, you know, again, making them not actionable. And I think that's, that's one of the problems that I see uh, where perhaps, you know, starting having have those overarching principles but never forget that we need to be uh domain specific as well we need to be jurisdiction specific as well because again if you're proposing something that is orthogonal to the uh, legal frameworks within a jurisdiction that is never going to fly either because uh, you know people are going to side with complying first with the legal requirements that uh, are mandated for them than to try and do something that is for the most part, you know, self-regulation or just, you know, prescribed industry standards. So again, I think, you know, when it comes to thinking about this, I would say thinking about the ethics of AI in specific contexts to me makes more sense than to talk about ethics of AI, because again, AI itself is such a broad term Mm -hmm. and and there's so many different ways of how it gets implemented in practice that uh, we really need to be a bit more granular in how we approach it. So then I, I also want to give you a chance to to be an optimist at the end of this discussion, uh, thinking about all the different applications of AI and all the different way you know, the huge space that AI covers. What are you most optimistic about when it comes to, I would, I would usually just ask my guest when it comes to, you know, technology or the future of human experiences, but I'd love to hear specifically in your mind, a, an application of AI that, that makes you uh, feel optimistic and hopeful about what it could do for humanity? So one, one of the things that I think is, is fascinating, and, and we've been making so many strides in this space, is machine translation. And the reason I, I you know, I'm so fascinated by it uh, is because it has the potential to unlock participation from people from different parts of the world. A lot of the knowledge today still is locked in different parts of the world just because we aren't able to effectively communicate with each other or it requires a ton of translation effort. And again, the people who are effectively able to, you know, sort of straddle two different or three or four different languages, there's so few of those people, right? <laughs> uh, and and even, even those who are, uh, to be able to uh, truthfully translate between one language to another without losing the meaning right. and nuances is, is hard, right? There are very few people who can do that very effectively. And so a lot of knowledge and, and the richness of our, you know, culture and history is, is locked away, is, is inaccessible. And, and if we were able to do that uh, in an automated fashion, 
I think I think that has the potential to unlock all of those pieces of knowledge. And then on my point around participation, uh, when you look at uh, the dominant language for the internet, uh, it's English, of course. Um, a lot of the you know uh, research findings and everything is published in English. That doesn't mean that there aren't people who aren't making you know contributions in in different languages. It's just that again, we we don't get to see them, but also that they sometimes face barriers in being able to consume this knowledge because it's only present in English. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder what the potential for um, making progress, even if we were to just talk about, uh, you know, let's say preprints on archive, if they were to automatically be translated and be available in a hundred different languages, imagine the kind of, uh, you know, strides and progress that we could make uh, because there would be all these people, all these budding researchers who, you know, maybe English is not their first language, maybe they're not comfortable with it, but because it's now translated into uh, French, or maybe it's translated into Hindi, mm-hmm. uh, are now able to read it and understand it and say, hey, oh, this idea clicks for me, uh, relates to some work that I'm doing, why not build on top of this work? Now, you really speak to my heart with that one as a, a linguist by education and a total human knowledge geek. I, <laughs> it's really exciting to think about what you're describing there. So last question is with our just our two minutes to go. How can people find and follow you and your work online and connect with what you're doing? Yeah, so um, I'm active on uh, all social media platforms. Well, I shouldn't say all. I mean, I'm not active on Twitter. I don't know how to use TikTok. Uh, you know, uh, sorry, I don't know how to use TikTok. I know how to use Twitter. <laughs> See, that's, uh, um, uh, I can be found on Twitter uh, quite frequently tweet there. So it's ATG underscore A-B-H-I-S-H-E-K. Uh, I also uh, have my website where people can find uh, all the work that I do. That's uh, atg dash a-B-H-I-S-H-E-K dot github dot I-O. Uh, and of course, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, if you type in my name, uh, along with the words AI ethics, uh, I presume you should be able to find me. And if you don't, actually do shoot me a message and, uh, you know, I'll Let's see what happens. Uh, um, and, 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 and a good old Google search with my first and last name with the words AI ethics uh, tends to turn up uh, information about me. Last thing I'd like to say there is uh, uh, next week uh, we have uh, the State of AI Ethics report coming out. It's the second iteration of our report from the Montreal AI Ethics Institute where we capture all of the research and development that's happened in this space over the past quarter, sort of summarized and made accessible uh, in an easy-to-consume fashion. So if you haven't uh, you know, subscribed to our newsletter from the Institute, please do so. It is at aiethics.substack.com. Great. We'll be on the lookout for that report. You said next week that'll be coming out? Yep. All yeah, right. Coming Excellent. out on Tuesday next week. Yep. Perfect. Uh, well, thanks so much for joining us here on the Tech Humanist Show, Abhishek. It's been wonderful to hear your perspective on AI ethics and the worldview of it and, and your hopeful view on how machine translation can actually connect human knowledge in a, in a richer way than ever before. So thank you so much for that. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Kate, for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care and get, get to sleep now. <laughs> <All right. laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to the Tech Humanist Show. You can find more information about the show's guests and links to their projects at thetechhumanist.com, where you can also find more episodes, or you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate O'Neill. Join me next time for more about how data and technology shape the human experience.